0: From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. mind. Welcome to From the Void.
1: Welcome back to From the Void. This week, I continue my conversation with retired detective Steve Hodell about the life of his father, Dr. George Hodell, and his potential connection to not only the Black Dahlia murder, but also a multitude of crimes before and after. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd recommend you pause this episode and listen to the first part first before jumping into this episode. If you've already heard it, then welcome to this week's episode, part two of George Hodell and the Black Dahlia on From the void no that's all, that's all incredible information I mean it, they basically have a confession from the guy I mean with you know a, he's one word shy basically of saying I did it you know so even to this day you think uh, that maybe perhaps part of the reason is that if he goes down he takes everyone with him even 50 years later.
0: Well, I, I don't think today's cops have a clue of, of any of it. You know, there were only a very few that knew insiders that knew what the hell was going on. That uh, George did it. There was a interesting anecdote I can tell you about when Parker. So Parker becomes chief for I think it was around 16 years. Then he has a heart attack and dies at, in the uh, right after the Watts riot. So that would have been around 66. He dies. Thad Brown becomes interim chief, and. Uh, I'm still working uniform. I hadn't quite gone to detectives. I'm, in, I'm working patrol in Hollywood. And the watch commander says, hey, I want four or five of you guys to go down to the swe- swearing-in ceremony of Thad Brown uh, at the auditorium. So we all get get in the same car, drive down. Thad Brown is sworn as the new chief. We get up and leave. or start I'm walking out the door and I hear this, hey, officer. I turn around and it's... Chief Thad Brown with his photographer and he says, how would you like your picture taken with a chief? What's it not to like, you know, how cool is that? We step outside, uh, stand next to him and smile, we're both smiling, pictures taken, I forget about it. Six weeks later, the interdepartment mail, they send me a photo, I throw it in a box and forget about it for 50 years. Well, what I come to realize is Thad Brown knew, absolutely knew that my dad was the Black Dahlia killer and i think he just couldn't resist the ph- photo op. you know <laughs> here's the son in uniform and, and i think you know and of course i never had a clue of anything so i mean that that was kind of an interesting te- tell on his part a- and um uh but um but, and then of course the, all of the other uh murders LAPD was actively involved in, in, in investigating five or six of them they didn't have the term serial killer back then they called him um they call them um, chain chain murders. They call them chain murders back then, and they had, you know, there are three three the three biggest myths about the Dahlia is one uh, that it was a standalone murder, none before, none after. They were actively back then investigating four or five that they felt were connected. So that's the first myth. Uh, the second myth was that it was a a uh, what was the second myth uh, that it was a basically a uh, uh, had never been solved you know well it had been sol- it had been solved but covered up and uh, then the third myth is about the missing week they go into details about supposedly there was a whole missing week from the time she checked what went into the Biltmore and was dropped off back then and then they found her body a week later well there was no missing week I went through and was able to establish 14 witnesses who actually saw and talked to her every day of that week. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I put it all together uh, from the separate pieces of the puzzle. Actually, the last witness to see her see her was a, a policewoman, Merle McBride, and she was working a beat downtown. And Elizabeth Short came running up to her and said, there's a man that's threatened to kill me, you know, uh, and McBride goes back to the bar with her, walks in, man's gone but her purse is there gets her purse a couple hours later they separate a couple hours later she's McBride sees her walk out with two men and a woman from another bar and walks up to her and says are you okay she says yeah i'm going to see my mother at the bu- uh, my father at the bus station and she leaves and that was like literally 12 hours before her body's no 18 hours before her body's found so that was probably George and another, Fred Sexton, who's uh, I believe is an accomplice of his. And uh, the woman is und- unidentified to this point. But anyway, uh, there's just so much. It just goes on and on. And that's why there are six books instead of... It's really one ongoing investigation, John. You know, and, and just more and more pieces of the puzzle. Had an opportunity to take a cadaver dog to the Franklin house. And he alerts to human remains in the basement. Um... At four four different spots, he alerts to human remains in the basement, and um, you know again forward that all to LAPD, and they're they're too busy to look at it. And um, the, I've actually been able to connect physical evidence from the Franklin House, uh, the Mayan Temple, to the crime scene. I, I mean, just it just goes on. It's amazing. I I, I was able to um, I, there's a whole part of this that's connected to surrealism and and we probably won't have time to get into all of that but dad's um madness his his personal madness was murders of what i call murders of fine art and it's connected to surrealism you know and, and surrealists believed that the dream state and the waking state were no different and man ray and duchamp and william copley and dolly all of them in their own ways you know kind of did this in their paintings. Well, dad, uh, they talked the talk, they'd have their wine and they'd, you know, theorize about all this. Dad walked the walk. He really truly believed there was no difference between the dream state and the waking state. And he went on and actually Elizabeth Short was his surreal masterpiece. Uh, as some of your listeners may know that, you know, the horrific, one of the reasons that it, bec- it became one of LA's most horrific unsolves is the fact that she was tortured for four hours, she was surgically bisected at the waist. Uh, They were absolutely sure it had to have been a skilled surgeon, not a meat cutter, not, you know, had to have been a surgeon. Uh, It was actually an operation that was taught in the 30s called a hemicorporectomy, where you have to go between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. Uh, and only as you know even the coroner said I couldn't do as good a job as this Who you know as the surgeon that did this so that's a limits your pool right there your suspect pool yeah. anyway there's just so much that that's unfolded um and it's just been a remarkable journey and uh you know I've been through every possible emotion you can think of you know
1: yeah, yeah i can only imagine uh, it's uh one of the things I think that's that is remarkable. You touched on it a little bit there is the fact that it is such a horrific uh, crime scene. What he did to the body is is it's not it's beyond just your normal murder. You know, someone gets shot or stabbed or whatever. He actually took his time, and not to glorify a crime scene by any means, but it's important uh, some of the details that he left because he left some some clues. He was it seemed that he was constantly just toying with law enforcement, like, try, you know, go ahead, try to catch me, uh, by leaving these little clues. And a lot of it does seem to relate back to, uh, his love of the arts ever since childhood. Uh, you know, the, you mentioned, uh, Man Ray and, and, you kind of link it to a very specific, uh, painting that he did. So talk about that a little bit.
0: Okay. Yes. He actually, uh, when I say that, the, that this crime and, and her body be, became his, uh, masterpiece, a surreal masterpiece, that's literally true. Uh, Man Ray is probably best known for several paintings. One is called the Minotaur. And the Minotaur is a photograph of a woman bisected at the waist uh, with her arms up in a certain position, like a surrender position. Uh, And she was carefully posed at the crime scene by Dad, posed in this position to imitate the Minotaur. Her mouth was cut, uh, surgically cut from e- almost ear to ear, in a, a, what you'd consider like a large smile, which is another, he, uh, Man Ray did a painting called The Lovers, Le Amaru, and it's a pair of lips floating above the horizon from from uh, side to side, almost across the, the, the uh, painting. And uh, so again, that's the second clue. But then he went further and he cut a strange... Um, Uh, diagonal crisscross pattern on her hip Uh, and um, this was an imitation of an earlier uh, painting that Man Ray had done in 1943 uh, called Les Equivocés and this crisscross pattern of lines that it completely he, he did it on her thigh in imitation of the painting of the face unbelievably it's all there's a high probability that the person that posed for that was Elizabeth Short Uh, because when you look at the hairstyle and everything about it it's a perfect picture of her because we don't have the face only because he has this pattern across it well dad took that pattern from the face and put it on her hip so there's three right there and um, uh, incredibly uh, these surrealists were in the know, I mean, after the fact, I don't believe they were actually involved in the crime itself, but after the fact, uh, they paid an homage to George in several of their paintings. Uh, William Copley, who was best buds of Man Ray and lived with him here in, in Hollywood during his Hollywood years, and had to have been friends with George, um, did a painting called It's Midnight Doctor Blank, and it's a woman... Lying prone with her hands above her head in the minotaur position, and it's a surgeon's uh, uh, surgeon's tools there, and uh, and a man a surgeon an unidentified man, and uh, the inference is obviously that he's about to bisect her in half. And this he did again, and and, and Duchamp did the attente donné, which is a famous um, uh, sculpture of a woman posed in. Uh, in a vacant lot, obviously murdered. Uh, again, an homage to George, and it goes on and on like this. Um, the other, the other factor was, uh, well, she she was in the coroner's uh, autopsy. It revealed that she was forced to eat feces, tortured and forced. I mean, you can imagine. Well, I was able to actually link. Um, You know, and of course they knew that the murder didn't occur there. It occurred at a home at some enclosed place. And there was no blood. There was no... So they knew the body had been transported from somewhere to that location. And incredibly, I was able to get the Man Ray um, folders and documents at UCLA in their special collections. And I discovered, once I got into the... uh, uh, Did I say Man Ray? I meant... uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. was uh, built for this Tem- Mayan temple, so he was actually the architect. And I went to his files, and in the R- R- Lloyd Wright files is a file George Hodel, and in within that file there were receipts for bags of manure and concrete, uh, where he was repair- doing repairs at the house. And these bags were actually these both the the manure bags and the concrete bags were used to transport her body halves from the from the house to the crime scene, and the date on the receipt uh, was actually three days before the murder. So wow! I'm actually tying you know no we don't have serial numbers but I'm actually tying and I'm sure that the fertilizer the manure was what was for, she was force fed that because uh, that was found in her stomach with a they mentioned a green substance, which was this fertilite, which the manure had. Anyway, again, that's physical evidence tying it directly from the Franklin House to the crime scene. And it just, you know, it just it never stops. Uh, that's why there's six books.
1: <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because the amount of, sure, at first, you know, it's a lot of circumstantial evidence. But it's like a mountain of circumstantial evidence at this point. It's overwhelming almost.
0: Yes, and uh, and uh, interestingly, I was able to find out that all of the top, co- all four of the top cops, actually there were six, but four of them uh, separately, now these are, I'll read you what they had to say about this, and these are all separate times, separate places, um, so uh, quoting Parker, uh, we, Chief Parker, we identified the Black Dahlia suspect, he was a doctor, okay? Uh, Thad Brown. Uh, the Black Dahlia case was solved. He was a doctor who lived on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. <laughs> now maybe it's another doctor on Franklin. I don't think so. Uh, Lieutenant uh, <clears throat> Lieutenant Jemison of the DA's office. We know who the Black Dahlia killer was. He was a doctor, but we didn't have enough to put him away. Yeah, they did. But um, and then finally, we've got the under sheriff, LA County under sheriff. Who says the black dahlia case was solved it'll never come out the suspect was a doctor they all knew in hollywood involved in abortions so you know all of these separate times separate places private communications to individuals and uh so you know there's no there really is no doubt at all that uh, you know it's way beyond reasonable cause
1: Uh, yeah it's unreal and and you mentioned earlier and i do want to uh uh, touch on this a little bit. You mentioned the fact that there, there were in fact other murders that fit the same MO, which again, as we talked about before, very unique compared to most murders. I mean, he's, he's literally bisecting the, the, the body in half, which you just, you don't see. Uh, so there are these other murders that you link to him as well uh, that remain unsolved. So uh, talk about those. Cause obviously, you know, we, we know way more about serial killers now than we ever used to the, the psychology Behind serial killers, and there's always kind of a um, kind of a first kill, and then a ramping up period. So it seems that this was probably not his first first rodeo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you got that right. So basically, I uh, I, I can't really speak about the, the early murders, but I'll, I will say this: that I've just completed my, my investigations into what I call the early years, and basically, I'm going to be presenting that. Probably within the next six six to nine months, hopefully it'll be published. And I can say this that he started as a teen, as a teenager, and never stopped. So these will cover the early years, the twenties and the thirties. Then we'll, go, of course, we've already presented these the forties and the fifties and the sixties. And as you say, um, these the the letters are amazing because one of the early clues to me, along with uh, some of the things I've already mentioned, is. My girlfriend at the time, when I was still in Bellingham, she sent me up uh, newspapers from that period. And one of them, as you indicated, was the killer, the black guy killer, was taunting the press and the police. He sent in at least uh, eight or 10 different letters. And they're all disguised, cut and paste, kind of like ransom notes, that sort of thing, taunting the police, catch me if you can, all of this stuff. But one was undisguised, and it was on the front page of the newspaper and i looked at it and it says turning myself in on january 29th had my fun at the police signed black dahlia avenger and i looked at it and it's my father's handwriting oh yeah very he's got a very unusual block printing and and i'm still saying to myself no way you know what is he pretending to be the killer what's going on here i still was in denial i said this this, this isn't possible but it's my dad's handwriting so he did a lot of tiny notes and stuff and um that was all you know he, dad was a nihilist he was a misogynist of the highest order uh, he was a, a sadist extreme in the extreme all of these things came together uh, to make one of the world's worst serial killers that's ever walked and, and um uh, i look at a lot of it i try to look at a lot of the triggers uh you know in his childhood and stuff which which i think were informative but So we've got the L.A. lone woman murders. We've got the Dahlia and those. But before that, he actually did three murders in Chicago. And then he did, uh, one was a child murder in Chicago, and then two adults known as the Lipstick Murders. Tragically, horrifically, a young teenager was arrested for those, spent 64 years in prison, and died in prison for a crime that George O'Dell committed. His name was William Hirons, totally innocent. Anyway, um... And then I discover in Manila, I discover a copycat, Lucilla Laloo, which she was uh, surgically bisected uh, in half, body posed throughout the city in parts and stuff. And um, uh, they said it had to have been a surgeon. It was two blocks from George's house. Then, of course, the other thing uh, which uh, you know really kind of blew things off the lid was when I, I came out writing most evil and in that i said i'm not saying george odell is zodiac i'm saying let's take a look at it because of these reasons there are many many similarities and uh of course i uh, w- what really pointed me there i would have never gone there but um uh were one of his, again one of his taunts was signs he posed his bodies near street signs that were a clue and i'll, I'll quickly i'll go through them uh so the little girl Degnan in Chicago, he posed her body off an alley uh, with a street named Hollywood. Okay, you say, well, that's coincidence, Hollywood, Hollywood surgeon, no. But then in a year later, he poses Elizabeth Short's body off a street named Degnan. What was the name of the little girl? Degnan. Then three weeks later, he poses Jean French's body after killing Elizabeth Short off a street named Mountain View. Elizabeth Short had just been buried in Mountain View Cemetery. So, and from there I go to Manila, and I find her body is posed off a street named Zodiac.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, so so that's what, I would have never gone there, except, I, and I'm saying to myself, no way, Zodiac was like 25 or 30, there's no way, dad was 60, it couldn't be, well, I get into the weeds of the Zodiac, and I find out actually there are two more composites of a much older man. A 45-ish, 50. Well, dad was 60, but he could pass for 45-50. And they're almost p- picture perfect of George O'Dell. I couldn't believe it. So I got into the weeds of that. And I said, let's put him at the top of the list. And then uh, f- uh, within six months, I get a communication from a man in uh, France, um, Paris, France, a uh, high school teacher. And he he says, hey, there's a one of these cryptograms these uh, that the, the Zodiac was writing, he says it's it's ancient Celtic, and there are five letters, and he says in the five letters are H O D E L, and with that and with a whole bunch of other, I came out with book two, and said yeah he he is Zodiac, and for all of these reasons, so I mean it's been the most bizarre you know, and then of course when we get to the early years it's gonna you're gonna you're gonna discover that. Same old stuff.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's absolutely astounding to think that one man uh, could be two of the most vicious serial killers in history. I mean, he's got to be one of the most prolific serial killers of all time at this at this point with this evidence pointing in his direction. Um, So one of the old sayings about serial killers is that uh, they don't just stop. They either get arrested or die. Right. So. Uh, in, in your opinion, based on your research, you know we you, we know he goes over to um, the Philippines and lives uh, the vast majority of the latter part of his life before moving moving back. At what point do you think that he that he stopped? And I'm assuming the reason behind it would have been just you know he's older, he's too old to to pull these off anymore.
0: Right, and I think. Of course, the moment I say this, I'll prove myself wrong and come up with a new case. But I, th- I think the last one was Paul Stein uh, in 1969, uh, the cab driver that he shot, uh, and in these later crimes, he's shooting him, you know, uh, as opposed to strangling. So, so in '69, he would have been 62, uh, and uh, I think, and I think June entering his life in 69 turned him around, probably got him off the drinking. He, he was a fairly heavy drinker heavy smoker his health was still he was still white-hot at that age but um within a decade he, he would fail fat you know he by he lived to 91 so uh but basically I think that was his last one uh, at 69 I think she got him off booze she got him off smoking she got him into a healthier lifestyle and um uh, uh and, and you know, throughout a lot of these letters that he's writing, we hear this voice that says, "I can't." Con- there's this monster within me. I can't control myself. Very much like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I thought was an interesting fictional account. But now, now I have to relook at that and think, you know, because he makes a lot of pleads. I can't control this thing. Help me. Stop me. Catch me. Um, and I have to believe that you know that the the doc. I mean, I would love the Dr. Jekyll. You know, part of him. To this day, I love the Doctor Jekyll, the Mister Hyde, the monster within, is a whole different story. And he was the stronger. You know, and uh, Dad just couldn't control him. And, and uh, not that that's any excuse, but it's I, I see it as, you know, uh, like I said, I've been through so many emotions—anger, hatred. I mean, when you look at the victim count, you know, and the relatives that are affected and stuff, you know, I, I there was a part of me that really hated him, hated the monster, the Mister Hyde. But but I can't help, I mean, his blood is flowing through me. He created me, you know. So right now I'm at just a terrible sadness, you know. It, it's just a, you know, he could have cured cancer. He could have done so much for humanity. But, uh, and I, I do look at some of the triggers, you know. I think, you know, I try to look at a bunch of them. And and um, I think a lot of things, the rejection from his, I I suspect he was a victim of incest, either his mother or some other family member. Uh, I, he was rejected constantly because he was so advanced, you know. The Caltech. the woman, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with this 14-year-old. And, and, and so, you know, throughout his life and, um, you know, a whole bunch of things came together. I'm sure there was congenital insanity too, you know, a whole bunch of things.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting aspect of... Uh, any, any snare that's kind of similar to this, uh, clearly, you know, the victims, uh, and their families are, uh, are affected by this, you know, but, uh, what we don't hear about enough, I, I think is the family members of the person who's actually committing the crimes, because that's, those are victims as well, uh, in a completely different way, you know, so talk a little bit about, cause obviously, you know, you and your brothers were quite young, you know, yeah. when you lived with him, when he was committing some of these crimes but uh, your mother was also there as well um, talk just about the toll that that kind of took on your family because it sounds like there was at least some indication that they knew uh, at least your mother knew
0: yeah, oh yeah no, no question about it and sadly that's that's confirmed in, in my unpublished will be confirmed that she definitely she definitely knew uh, about many of the crimes at least some of the crimes um, well you know, frankly, uh, when I look back at my childhood, speaking for myself, it was uh, a wonderful, it was a magic time. You know, here with the three little boys, the three little princes running around in this magic castle, you know, uh, right out of, you know, I mean, uh, it was just an amazing uh, flying carpets and turbaned. you know, it was very cool. And, and the parties, you know, a lot of laughing, a lot of drinking and stuff, and we'd, hang out and look from the roof and stuff and watch everybody having a good time. It wasn't like there was group sex in the middle of a courtyard or anything. It was, it was more private than that. If it was going on, we weren't aware. At least I wasn't. Um, and dad was severe. And he certainly wasn't, wasn't warm, fuzzy, but he, uh, uh, you know, and if we did, st- you know, but, and and he was, I can't say he was abusive. I mean, he, if I did something wrong, he would take me to the cellar and spank me with a, a strap, but I, that's kind of old school, you know, I mean, it's like, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I never considered it abusive, and he had this power in this presence, it was almost like if you walked into the room, you were in the presence of the Pope or something, he had this ability to command and control everything, and uh, so, you know, all, most of my, all of my memories from the, that time period, so that was, you know, basically from zero to Nine, nine years old. And I have no negative, you know, I never saw anything evil. Now, Tamar would later say, well, he was, you know, you." and it's true. I've probably blocked out a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of kind of empty space in there that shouldn't be there for, a, for my age. I should remember things from seven and eight, nine. And I don't have a lot of memory there, very little. So Tamar said he was very abusive to mom, pulling her around by the hair, hitting her and stuff. Um, which I'm um, certainly was tr- true uh, and, and she had her own problems and her own demons you know she was an alcoholic beautiful woman strikingly beautiful some of the Man Ray photographs are just amazing you know that I put in the book and uh, uh, and she was brilliant probably smarter than John and George put together she had a, you know a screenwriter and a, just a wonderful soul but you know very, very much I think very ma- masochistic in her own right, you know, and the drinking. And so I think that now I look back and I see the drinking is to cover up the horrors that she she knew and was living with. And she was like a, a mother bear protecting her cubs, you know. I'm sure George said, if you say anything or if you, you know, let anything leak out, you know, you're dead, they're dead. So I'm sure she was terrified throughout. Um, both, both of my brothers, kind of the same as me. Um, I, you know, my older brother Mike died at cancer at young, at 47. So he never had a clue to any of this. My other brother Kelvin is alive and he's totally on board. I mean, he, you know, he was never, for whatever reason, Dad had 11 children and I was his favorite. You know, go figure. I mean, you know, and he basically only kind of communicated with me as adults. And um, uh, there's a whole bunch of you know other things. That, He tried to get me to leave the department, come over and work for him in Manila. He got into market research, became the most, uh, the the leading expert in market research throughout Asia and Europe, Uh, 20 countries. He had offices in 20 countries. So he became this huge, larger than life figure. And of course, I I considered going, working for him, you know, Um, but halfway, I was halfway through my career. I thought, no, I, and the thing that bothered me was I was aware of how controlling he was. And I said, nah, I, I can't deal with that. So I passed. But, um, um, uh, and, uh, of course, Tamar had a whole different scene with him. And, you know, she was madly in love with him, literally and figuratively. And, um, for a long time, I don't think she ever stopped loving him, you know, and, um, uh, despite the incest and stuff, uh, he was just this, such a powerful force that she was just kind of, you know, but she kind of spun, spun out of control in her own right, and loved sex, you know, she became part of that bohemian lifestyle in the 50s, went to San Francisco, The Hungry Eye, hooked up with Michelle Phillips, who was just a 14-year-old t- then, taught her a lot of bad habits. Oh, boy. <laughs> and took, took Michelle with her to San Francisco, and they both kind of, you know, got did that whole scene and michelle became her godmother of her three children or her five chi- yeah three the three boys she was godmother and i have met michelle and, and we've talked about it and michelle was very much aware of not the black dahlia but she was aware well actually she may have told her that tamar apparently you know she claimed she told other people but the first time i had ever heard it was you know on that phone call but we hadn't had you know, we had 20 minutes of discussion in 50 years before that, so.
1: Wow. So you you have the unique perspective, like you said, that you were his favorite and and you established, reestablished, I should say, a relationship with him upon his return to the United States. Talk about what the last years were like. What what Was he a different kind of person at that point? Um, getting to know him better in hindsight, do you see any signs that perhaps, you know, alluded to you then, but obvious now. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, actually, he, you know, he was always remote, he was kind of like, he was always this man behind the iron mask, but, uh, you know, and very kind of reserved and, and stuff, but June was much more, one of the interesting things I discovered, and uh, again, in that, in that last nine years, he would come up and they would come up and visit me, I would go down to visit them, and he was never warm fuzzy, but he he was, the interesting thing that I, I thought was most telling was that he didn't understand humor now i try and use a lot of humor in my communication it's just a part of my personality and he never got it he he would look to june and she would have to translate steve humor to english for him you know yeah yeah and which is interesting because um when you when you look back now and realize what he really was i could see how humor he would not connect with humor You know, a psychopath of that I order would would probably would not understand humor at all, you know. And um, so there was that. But we we would go on day trips. I would, you know, drive and we would uh, go to local local areas and and eat dinner, eat lunch. And it was always, um, you know, kind of I would go, I would stay elsewhere and, and then visit them for a few hours, lunch and stuff. So it was It was never, he never really softened, I, you know, he. but he was, He mellowed, I guess you could say he mellowed. He was not the white-hot, you know, f- person I knew before. I mean, if you f- go back, he, he came through L.A. a lot during the years when he was overseas. Almost every two or three years, he would, and it would always be, Hello, Stephen, this is your father speaking. Uh, get your brothers together and meet me for dinner. I've only got a few hours, you know. And we'd run around and we'd run out to him and uh, he was, I remember one time he was staying at the Century City Hotel and uh, he said, well, let's go up and have a drink in, in my suite. So we went upstairs and we're, the three, three of us brothers are there and he says, all right, now he says, Michael, I want you to take three minutes and update me on your life. You're the oldest, so we'll begin with you then Steven, you can update me on your life, take another three minutes, and Kelvin, you know, and you know, with me, I'm I'll be down in the bar, Dad. And I, I walked out and went, down, I you know, I wasn't going to play those games. But he that's just, you know, he was, he just really didn't know how to deal, and, he's, and he was a psychiatrist. I mean, after his, after his doctoring and surgery, he became a psychiatrist. And and uh, ca- he actually was counseling the criminally insane in Hawaii State Prison. You know, talk about know the enemy, huh? I mean, <laughs> can you imagine this guy? He he really must have been getting off with listening to these murderers tell their stories, right? <laughs> and he's probably thinking, uh, that ain't nothing, buddy. I got
1: <laughs> <laughs> you and guys went, got caught,
0: yeah. Yeah, but he was always very stiff and formal. But uh, he tr- in the last decade he tried. You know. It, and it it was awkward he was uncomfortable he didn't know how to fake it very well but i was you know i was just glad to see him and and because he had so many accomplishments i was looking at all of that you know and and uh i never expected any of this to unfold the way it did i mean you know and it's it started in 19 it started with that call down on his death and it's been going what 22 years now it's, yeah and eight books It's like, wow, you know, my, my boys are, my two sons are saying, dad, I think it's time you get a life. He said, he said, you were going (laughs) to retire with LAPD at age 41. And I says, well, I'm shooting for 81 now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, the, the last question I have for you is, is obviously, um, you know, today's technology is, is, uh, We were talking about this before, before we started recording. You know, the technology that we have available to us now is remarkable. And one of those things, one of those advancements in technology, obviously, is in the realm of DNA. Um, Is there any DNA that we know of that was left behind in any of these murders that they could compare?
0: I think so. I have been trying to get, that's what I've been focused on the last couple of years. I've been trying to get the departments to do it. I have dad's full DNA profile. Oh, wow. It's not like they got to do anything. All they got to do is say, you know, does it compare or not? It's a match or it isn't. You know, the problem is you've got five. Let's just take Zodiac. You've got five different law enforcement. You got Riverside, San Francisco, Vallejo, Napa, and someone else, Miss Salado County, I guess. So they've all got their own little pieces of evidence, right? That are have potential, but nobody has. There's no confirmed Zodiac DNA. They, they have no, cons- you know, that it might be or it might not be. Well, I would think the first thing they would do is compare all of them to each other. To, all I need is two of them to match and they've got Zodiac DNA. But they haven't even done that, they, uh, to my knowledge. And so, and, and it's, you know, it's sad because uh, one of the biggest faults, and I know because i was been there and, and uh, is territoriality, egos, nobody's going to solve my Zodiac case, you know, that kind of thing. So you've got that dealing with that. Uh, I'm hoping um, it, next year we're working. We're actually in production now on a uh, miniseries, which is going to convert, which is adapting my books, the six books, uh, to a uh, television miniseries, maybe five, six episodes. I don't know. Wow. We're working on that now. So um, I'm hoping that will raise the bar to where, some of these, when when they realize, you know, you you can tell how much evidence is there. I mean, it really is beyond a reasonable. And it's the it's the same. If I can get law enforcement to, you know, if we can get some, get it out there amongst the public, maybe we can get some movement because it's been very frustrating. I've tried to to, to get the DNA done, and and they're just, you know, I don't know what to say. It's just. Ugh
1: yeah maybe maybe uh perhaps the additional exposure will, will will kind of push him in that that direction. I meant to ask earlier too, is there any particular reason why the current owners of the Souden house haven't uh dug in the basement themselves because I would assume if they found body or found uh bones that would force the police department to to get involved
0: yeah for I, I don't you, the current owners w- won't allow digging and um I don't know maybe they're thinking well how is this gonna you know, it's a $5 million. It just sold for 5 million. Uh, you know, what, what's that going to do if we got dead, dead bodies buried? I don't know. We've tried. And, uh, actually there was in the back up the hill, there's actually a, an indication that there may, may have been buried because when we were living there, we used to play up on the hill behind and it was all open and stuff. And, uh, the handler, the dog handler, uh, Paul Dostey, who is a retired cop uh, up north, and his dog Buster, uh, he thinks that there may well have been buried up above and, you know, it came down. So, also, so, uh, but they, again, they, they won't, they refused us to even do a walkthrough up there. So, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, I, personally, I've made the case, you know, and, and it's there and all the evidence is there. And, (laughs) My, you know, my judge and jury is the public and my readers, you know, and most of them get it. You know, there's a few that say, oh, it's, it all falls apart. You know, the woman, the photograph, there's big controversy. It's not, that's not Elizabeth Short. Maybe it is. Well, I had a German high-tech facial recognition company in Germany, one of the top in the the world, do a comparison uh, on the photograph to known photographs of Elizabeth Short. And they come back with a 97.5 percent probability that it is her, um, which is very, very. They were surprised. It was very. That's a very high likelihood. And yeah, but you have to have a 99.7 to call it a positive. So, uh, but there's that. But also, it doesn't really matter. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that started me down the path. One of the things that started me. But you can throw it out because in the DA files, they say that George Odell and Elizabeth Short were acquainted and dating so that's documented by the police so and the only reason for the photograph was to show they were connected but well, we don't need that because we've got LAPD or we've got the uh, police department saying they were connected and they did date so yeah, it,
1: it, yeah. <laughs> you throw the photo out it, it doesn't negate the rest of the oh, amount the of case. evidence yeah yeah unbelievable well uh, thank you so much for your time. I know there's. Uh, I, I just want to encourage people to go out and, and read the books. There's so much more information that you've uncovered. I mean, like I said, it's literally it's overwhelming at this point. So, uh, but I I appreciate you coming on. This is a, a great pleasure for me. And uh, uh, come back anytime when when the new book comes out. I'd love to love to talk about the earlier years.
0: Okay, John. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And. Uh, I listened to, your, to, to, to one of your shows uh, a few days ago, and I was very impressed. Well, oh, thank you. You do a good job.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, buddy.
1: Based on the copious amount of evidence linking George Hodel to the Black Dahlia murder, it seems almost inarguable that he's responsible for at least that murder. But is the brutal killer behind other unsolved murders like the lipstick killings, the jigsaw murder, or even the Zodiac killings decades later, the very same man? At the very least, he deserves to be examined and examined closely. And whatever evidence may remain from those cases should be examined for any connection to Dr. Hodell? or if it's not him, someone else so that maybe we can finally get some sort of closure for the victims whose cases have long since gone cold. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend and leaving a five-star review on iTunes. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery, and until then, thanks for listening to From the Void.